0: Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Practical CMO. And today's show called What Happens When Sales and Marketing Collaborate and What Happens When They Don't. We think this is a pretty timely topic. The dual challenges to both understanding the differences between sales and marketing and then aligning them for the benefit of your business don't seem to be easy to resolve. And here's a piece of evidence that supports that claim. For years, one of the most downloaded articles offered by Chief Outsiders has been the piece titled, What's the Difference Between Sales and Marketing? Now, I thought since I've managed both sales and marketing in my career that it was obvious to everybody yelled sort of why they're different, but boy, it really came to understand that that is not the case. And in fact, how important it is that you do understand how they're different and how they can work together. I believe understanding the differences between these disciplines and ensuring that they work together closely can really be the difference between industry leading growth or being an industry laggard. So my guest Bob Lambert and I have both managed sales and marketing organizations and we're going to lay out the argument for you while we also share two points of view based on our experiences managing these disciplines. Today, my guest is Bob Lambert, an experienced go-to-market executive. I was introduced to Bob a few months ago, and we found that we have very similar experiences, but we also discovered that we also both share similar views of the roles that sales and marketing organizations could and should play individually and together to drive business success. So I'm going to have Bob tell you a little bit more about his business. Bob, welcome to today's program.
1: Hey, thanks, Mark. I've really been looking forward to this since we had lengthy conversations about this, and we have a lot of contact in common. Well, first of all, let me go back to the roots. Actually, what started all this is my early career. Spent a decade with a little company called Nestle and uh, started out on the marketing side with a product called Taster's Choice Coffee, which became multi-million dollar success uh, in a couple of years. But what that really demonstrated to me on the marketing side was that, and I also came from a retailing background, so I had a bit of an edge over my peers that were in there in marketing because in high school, I actually ascended to the role of an assistant manager at a food chain. Coming out then, we had a wonderful program, and this gets to the point of what we want to talk today, about the understanding between the two and how those two can come together and be aligned. As the marketing department, our assignment was every quarter, we had to be out with the sales organization for a full week in the market and experiencing what they went through, calling on supermarket buyers, understanding and reading what the consumer patterns were and all that type of thing. Uh, That was an enormous experience for me, but what it really did was that when I saw issues that we were having out in the marketplace, because of my retailing background, I was able to take and go back to the headquarters at that time was in White Plains, New York, and design marketing programs tailored more to the buyers at the grocery chain and solving some of their problems. And then basically through our wonderful advertising marketing, we had, so we had an outside in view, and we were always going out to the consumer to help them to make a decision once they came in the supermarket to buy Nestle products, especially coffee products, because at that time, that was the dawn of freeze-dried coffee. So it was a whole new concept. And we became enormously successful at that. Well, because of that, I got tapped on the shoulder to then go out into the sales organization (laughs) and start becoming a salesperson because they thought it was rather unique what I was doing because of my background experience. And so that's when I started my sales career. (laughs) was out with Nestle, actually started carrying a bag, and then ascended into a management position, landed here in Chicago in 76, running a a 30-person sales organization, which was a a whole different division, by the way. I had sales organizations that were all the different levels of sales organizations. We had independent sales organization. We had captive sales organization. I worked through brokers, food brokers. So I got a real education across that whole scope of what was going on. After that, then got to the point where I founded the Samurai Business Group back in 01. And the genesis of the Samurai Business Group was really to take and help young people understand what sales was all about because they weren't getting training, they weren't getting coaching. And I had wonderful coaches and mentors all the way through my career that really molded and shaped me. And I I thought, this is criminal. We got to do something about it. It's a great career. Well, I found out pretty quickly young people couldn't pay me doing that. So I went back to where my roots were and really started helping agencies and marketing organizations understand this thing called business development or sales. Mm -hmm. And that's where I first kind of developed the whole business development model. But also at the same time, I found what was wrong with sales training and sales in general. It was all push. You know, it was always be closing, sell, 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 buy, buy, buy. And I said, no, that's wrong because human beings buy emotionally they rationalize or intellectually justify that decision. And that wasn't happening in B2B sales. It was just all push, 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 product, product, product. And so that's when we developed, got together with a partner, got some worldwide research, and we developed the buying decision model. And the buying decision model is focused entirely on the buy, not on the sell. Yeah. And that was really to help in how it was molded and shaped because we knew that people love to buy, they hated to be sold. And so what I did coin the phrase with, Mark, was this. There's only been one constant through all of marketing and sales. Do you know what that is?
0: Oh, is this a test question? We didn't rehearse this part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you do know what it is because there's only one constant through all of that. And that is a human is buying something. If you're selling to aliens or robots, I can't help you. But if a human being is involved in this, they're emotional beings. And I don't care how hardcore you want to talk about B2B buyers or procurement agents, there's an emotional element to what they're doing.
0: Right. Picking up on what you were just talking about, the emotional component, most of us in Chief Outsiders are um, familiar with neuromarketing, particularly as articulated in a book called The Persuasion Code. There are two authors and the, the one who wrote the front half of the book, is the neuropsychologist and the one that wrote the second half of the book is translates it all into marketing theory and practice. When I read that, I was introduced to that about a year ago, it started to explain a lot of things to me. It sort of gave a rationale to things that I experienced in my own career. You know, you talked about sort of that crossover early in your career between marketing and sales. I kind of went the other direction. I started in sales and went into marketing, and then everybody was like, oh, thank you. Now we have somebody in marketing who understands what it's like to sort of be a sales person, right? Maybe that's why you and I kind of sort of hit it off because we had early on in our careers, we were really exposed to both. We could see the power of them.
1: You brought something up that was really great about that too, just so the buying decision model is absolutely founded on neuroscience and behavioral science. What the whole genesis of that was, and it's, we're not talking about rocket science here. This is basic human stuff. that has been around since the dawn of man. But what we did was we codified that because when we put that and constructed together, Mark, we did worldwide research to buyers and their attitudes about salespeople, who was good, who was bad and all that. And one of the things that popped up with them when we asked them about that, almost 80% of the buyers said that, most sales interfaces they had, or people coming in and calling on them, was a waste of their time. That was big.
0: I mean, any salesperson. I mean, I never liked having a, a large body of unqualified leads dumped on me. Right. And yep. you know, that's the essence of the intelligent sales pipeline approach that I've been championing. Right. It's like. You know, I like the model of where it's not a funnel. You don't yep. dump tens of thousands of leads in the top to get a few out the bottom. I like the model of a pipeline where you put 50 prospects in and you get 49 or 50 customers out. I mean, that, yeah, there that, you go. <laughs> I, I love productivity and efficiency and effectiveness. And I know that that's sort of the essence of the Samurai model, right? And I i like to just, first of all, I think Samurai Business Group is a great name, but I, I always think it should have an audio component. So when you say it, it should go swish, swish, yeah, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> but uh, we can work on that. But tell me, tell me a little bit of how you approach companies that you work with, Bob. Sort of what's the essence of sort of, I mean, you've mapped out a very rigorous discipline to help them improve. Let's talk about the sort of high level essence of how you do that.
1: Well, there's three basic problems most clients are coming to me with. And in the first one right out of the gate is prospecting. You know, I know, we haven't got enough prospects. We haven't got enough prospects. And we specialize solely on B2B, more complex selling, longer selling uh, cycles. And also, how do you really speak buyer? Okay. I take a, a chapter out of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Seek first to understand before being understood. So the essence of this really is, is to get on that side of the table. And in doing that, I want to know what's the problem with your prospecting? Why are you having a tough time with prospecting? Oh, if we can get them in, then we, you know, get in front of them, then we can sell them. And I said, well, well, first of all, what are you doing to prospect? How's you going to market? What's the, you know, what's your message? You know, what's unique about you? What what would make somebody want to come to you or want to even do business with you? Right? So I'm kind of putting my marking hat on a little bit because, you know, again, seeking first to understand what happens was I'm hearing all their stuff blah, 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 but I'm not hearing anything about, well, what are the buyers needs? What are they looking mm-hmm. at? Yeah. And so again, they're forcing the situation. So I said, let's, let's step back a minute and let's look at this and see what you're doing. So I'm understanding exactly how they're going to market. How are they prospecting? What are their salespeople engaged in and all that? Once we start to figure that out, then we really build out what I call the um, prospecting pyramid. And the prospecting pyramid starts with understanding what your target market is first. What's the sweet spot? What is really the people you love doing business with or your best customers and all that? And then be able to then start to investigate what that, does that look like? Where are these perfect customers? Then networking. I developed a whole networking system that has nothing to do with cold. I don't coach and teach anything to do with cold calling, especially mm-hmm. for B2B. With everything, all the walls we got set up today, it's you can't get through to people. So I start with, and thank God for LinkedIn. I was in the first 100,000 was in LinkedIn. I saw that thing coming up because I used to have to do that manually before. So we built and constructed a whole way to do networking, both online and offline. So we get into that, which plays off of the base of understanding who are you going after in the first place? And then how do you effectively get to those people? And that is using really a network. And how do you get to those people? And we, we go through that whole process. And then how do you form strategic alliances and partnerships with so people basically swim in the same pond you do, but are not competitive to you? Yeah. And so you can align yourself, much like you and I can align ourselves when we go in, right? You can go in as the marketing expert. I can come in as a sales expert and we can connect those two together and really create something powerful for a company back and forth. Right. The next step up basically then is how do you get actually quality referrals and quality introductions? In that top of that pyramid, basically with the strategic alliances and partners, quality introductions or quality referrals and quality introductions, 90% of that turns into business, 90%. But unfortunately, people don't spend the time cultivating that that they need to do because they want a quick fix. Oh, uh, just throw more cold calls. Just keep doing the same thing you've been doing that doesn't get any results. And the insanity continues, you know? So that was one thing. Then number two was they had no clue how people bought. With the buying cycle, it's not about you; it's about the buyer, and it will right. go the the buy will go at the speed of the buyer, not the speed of what you want to sell them. And so, understanding that, what we found when we introduced the buying decision model, it actually accelerates the buying process mm-hmm. when you do it. Okay, and so we identified three apparent reasons that people will give you that we can map them directly to compelling reasons that will drive them to buy. Yeah, and then in between there. The discovery process, we brought back Socratic questioning. You know, Socrates once said, I can't teach him anything. I can only ask them questions to make him think. And that's exactly what the Socratic method is designed to do. It's get the buyer engaged. And once you have them engaged, you have them engaged emotionally. And we know they buy emotionally. Right. So that's the compelling reasons. So the three apparent reasons that we undiscovered was, I've got a problem, I've got a pending event, or I have an opportunity. We've had a bounty out for 30 years or for 20 years. Anybody could come up with any more than that. Great. But generally speaking, people like concentrate on either pain or gain, right? But fear is in there all the time. Insurance is sold on fear. Uh, when you look at April the 15th, that's a fear date, right? So those three map directly to the compelling reasons, pain, fear, and gain. That's the genesis of the buying decision model. And then the last one is basically, how do you really get customer loyalty Okay. And then how do you create that loyalty into evangelists for you? That then goes right route to back to the beginning of the prospecting model where you're getting really quality prospects because you're being led or introduced to them by somebody that knows them and trusts them.
0: Yeah. You know, in closing that loop, I just had that conversation with somebody earlier today. You know, I just finished up some research for a consumer business and their net promoter score was 62 on their product, right? 62 is a blowout number, right? I mean, when you think the range is minus 100 to plus 100 <laughs> yeah, and right. companies like Apple are in the high 60s or low 70s, right? Yep. They did not know that. And they thought people liked their product, but they didn't under, really understand the strength of that loyalty and that affiliation. So of course, now we're talking about customer referral programs and other things to try to build on it, and try to close yep. that loop, right? Yep.
1: Yep.
0: Because like we call this show the practical CMO, Bob. I think it's Always helpful to share a couple of case studies with the audience, right? And I thought, let's take one where uh, sales and marketing were not aligned. They weren't integrated. Why don't you share an example with the audience of somewhere you've worked or, or a business that you worked with where you felt like that poor integration was really negatively impacting the business's performance?
1: Yeah, well, I, I've got a lot of examples of that you know, where they weren't where they weren't aligned because uh, I guess having the privilege that I did early on in marketing and the alignment between sales and marketing and marketing having to go out in the field and then sales had to spend time inside, it became a wonderful synergistic alignment. Everybody was singing on the same song sheet and the success rate goes up exponentially. And I've got some examples of that. Probably one of the examples I would use is a client that we had that was an engineering consulting firm, and a big one. It was a 400-person co- firm. And they wanted to basically get their, the high potential individuals that want to be partner uh, to start producing. And that's the thing called sales. Well, you, I couldn't use the word sales there. It had to be business development, personal mm. development, because they engineers don't want anything to do with sales, right? right. So that was what I was uh, being brought in. But as I started to realize is their marketing message was incongruent with what the heck they were looking to do and the, the customers they were going after and all that stuff. So there was a misalignment right from the get-go within the company. And I told them, I said, until you get your marketing messaging straight as to what you guys are and what it is that the proposition is that you bring to the party... I can do all the training in the world, but it's not going to help your marketing at all. It's not going to help you bring in the essence of what this is. So there's going to be misalignment mm-hmm. with this. So we did. Went to work on that a little bit. Uh, again, these are engineers. So marketing is kind of an anthem to them. They <laughs> am like, oh, really? <laughs> we, had, we had got some consulting to come in there. But still, their headset just wasn't on. And you, you pointed out in Growth Gears, I think it was marvelous the way it's broken out there. You have either companies that are operationally driven or marketing driven. And it's almost a 50-50 split. And this was definitely an operationally driven company in their mentality and everything that they got. They were excellent at what they did. They, By the way, they had screaming evangelists for them. And that's one of the things that I taught them our model was how to leverage that with their customers. A good example of that, they were one division of a multi-division company. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I have never seen evangelism like this out of a company, how well you guys did. So why don't we take and leverage that why don't you look left and look right? Ask your contacts within that division. Who do they know in the other divisions? And it was amazing. Turned into half a million dollar opportunity or project for them within the first three months I worked with them. Because yeah. all they did was start asking people to yeah. do that. You know, yeah. Now that's, that's kind of a natural, right? Because you're, you're in alignment there with the proposition was, but you got people who are evangelizing you with the work you did. So the marketing yeah. message internally was one that was in alignment it was just getting them to understand that they had to take that out to the marketplace because they were in a very competitive set of what they were doing. And they couldn't quite figure it out why they weren't getting more business coming to them, you know, and being able to drive it to them. Yeah. So that would be the example I'd tell you of the misalignment in a lot of work that had to be done there.
0: Yeah. Well, your statement about their messaging was just off reminds me of, uh... Uh, business I worked with a couple years ago, and their value proposition started out with, we've been in business since 1932, exclamation point, right? And then you, you very carefully have to say, well, why should anybody care about that, right? And what have you done for me lately? Because that's probably yeah, what I, they're going to really care about, right? But my one horror story that I walked into was I met a CEO over lunch, and you know, it was about sales and marketing alignment. And he goes, Mark, let me just give you the, the quick lay of the land. Marketing and sales are at war with each other in my company. Like, really? I mean, how bad, how bad is that? He goes, no. He goes, you don't understand. They hate each other. They don't talk to each other, right? I mean, this wasn't some giant you know, international conglomerate, right? I mean, this was a company where you could walk down the hall and talk to anybody you really wanted to, right? And um, as it turns out, I don't think there was a lot of alignment across the whole leadership team. And in the end, as a CEO, you can't allow that to persist. You have to find a way of getting people on topic, on plan and aligned. Your example of a um, quick success story that sort of everybody noticed is probably one of those key things. Do something mutually together, create a success story, and then people will start to kind of come around to it. So how about somebody who you've seen that's really got the alignment and the integration nailed and what that meant to their performance. You must have a good example of one of those.
1: I do. And it's right in your home state. Uh, It's a, a company called Wausau Homes. And we started working with Wausau Homes back in 08 when the market imploded. As you can imagine, being a home builder, they were in 15 states. They had uh, five factories up. Uh, they're what they call a panelized or systematized home. And you'd live in one of these things. They're fabulous. They're built under six acres of roof up in Wausau, Wisconsin. Well, they withdraw back up to the upper Midwest. They trimmed down. They had 100 and some uh, builders had to trim those down. These are independent builders that, that sign on to license their system, basically, to build homes. And so the fabulous part about this is that they got aligned with a agency that I knew well, and they really understood marketing because they came out of marketing. And the first thing they did, much like what what we show in that book, you know, uh, Growth Gears, is they understood that get insight. And so what they did right away was get insight as to what are the common issues, the angst and the pains that buyers go through when building a home or remodeling. And through their research, they identified three of them. They identified it's never done on time, it's never done on budget, and it's never done my way. Mm-hmm. Wausau then in their marketing messages, basically, which was unbelievable, unprecedented, went out and guaranteed all three of those. So when you bought a Wausau home, you were guaranteed to be on time, on budget, and done your way. Mm-hmm. That was That's big, and that's putting it out there. <laughs> especially. Yeah, for home it sure like is. That. That's like almost birthing a child, right? Everything's got to line up just yeah, right.
0: Yeah.
1: So they created a system where that could happen, Mark. And it was just a wonderful thing to see because then we came in with them, developed out the whole training program for their builders. And that, what what that down to the builder, because oftentimes what happened with these old-time builders, the stick builders, a couple would come in. They were talking to the male. They were talking to the man. They weren't talking to the female. And she makes 90% of that decision as to what the house is going to look like inside and out, right? And so we reshaped how they thought down to the point where they took them out of model homes and put them into strip centers into 15 or 2,500 square feet footprint. They were all identical. And what we did in that footprint is we designed them to walk through the buying decision model all the way back to where they actually would design the home right in front of them on a computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Unbelievable. Here's the bottom line was this 25% growth year over year for the last eight years. 25% year-over-year growth for the last eight years. Anybody building a home in the upper Midwest, Wausau Homes is going to be on the list. If you go out to their website, it's unbelievable the evangelism that they've created, the loyalty they've created. They're doing multi-generational now, home building for people. It's fabulous. And they're just wonderful. They adopted this thing. We actually did uh, portions of our training through the entire company. That's how much they thought of it. They want everybody to be on the same page as to what... A decision process was, and that they were building the home of somebody's dreams.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot in there, but I think the focus on understanding the buyer, the buyer personas, uh, mapping the whole process from buyer contact all the way through delivery of the finished product. I mean, a lot to be learned from that. I'd just offer one success story. It's a business who. Just one 2020 manufacturer of the year that I've worked with for several years. And a couple, three years ago, they were, the sales and marketing people didn't talk to each other there either, right? Seems to be my sort of fate to kind of get into these businesses where that's that's the case. At least they respected each other. They just didn't talk to each other. But we managed to adopt an integrated model that I, today I call it the um, intelligent sales pipeline. But it's a more effective way of uh, doing a better job of identifying prospects using what I kind of call an ideal customer profile. Your language for that was very similar, right? But you start with who is it that if they were a client or a customer, you'd want 100 more just like them, right? That's kind of the ideal customer. And then trying to figure out how can we find them? Where do we find them? How do we connect with them? And it's sort of a combination of sort of inside out marketing because you know what your capabilities are and your product and services are, but it's also outside in because you're specifically looking for those prospects and those customers that you know you can connect your value proposition strongly to. And um, so, yeah, your case study of Wasa, eight years, 25% annual growth. I mean, this business has grown. 20% annually the last couple of years, just one 2020 manufacturer of the year. And it's the strength of the go to market program, the integration of sales and marketing together. That's been a big driver along the way. So, you know, there's a lot of learnings we could already extract, I think, and let's, I think we should just kind of highlight those, um, before we take a short break. Um, so I, some of the things that I've written down, um, You've talked about quick successes, you know, generating a quick success so everybody can see the power of what alignment integration does. You've talked a lot about message reinforcement, making sure that you've got the right positioning, but everybody understands it and can articulate it um, and reinforce it. You've talked about voice of customer, how important it is to have the insights um, about what what your customers want in terms of product or service attributes. Um, you talked about the importance of understanding buyer personas or buyer individual buyer profiles, right? I mean, if we, if we kind of look through those examples, is there anything else that you'd pull out of that and say, hey, you know, this is also kind of a common thread?
1: Well, you know, you, you hit on something that we always look at when we start looking at alignment with those best customers. And what is it about them? What I find, Mark, oftentimes is people don't take the time to go out and talk to their customers. Ask the question, why do you do business with me? What is it about what we do that you really like? And you think you do business with us till the cows come home? People don't do that. They're fearful of actually hearing something and they, they're fearful they're gonna hear something they don't want to hear. Okay. Mm-hmm. I always go out there. And the way that I lead that is basically I coach my clients on if there was one thing we could do better, what would that be? Not what we're doing wrong, but if there's one thing we could do better, what would that be? And it's amazing. People will open up, okay. Because the opposite of that, they don't want to talk about anything negative. They don't want to talk you down, especially Midwesterns, because we're passive aggressive here, right? Right.
0: We can't. <laughs> your just
1: will tell you right to your face what it is that <laughs> yeah, you're doing wrong. But right. you know, if there's one thing we could do, I also use that in competitive situations. So I teach and coach the, my, the students is basically in a competitive situation, you never want to dish your, your competition, right? So and I had a, an example of that with a bank that they were trying to go out and they were sending information out. And this poor young woman had to go out there and follow up with them. And she'd been following up this one guy for about two years. And he said, no, no, we're fine. Our whole thing. She ended up that day after I coached her because she said, what would you do? I said, well, I don't know if this will work or not, but try it. I've had other clients that have done it in it work. And that would be yeah, that company you're working with, the bank you're doing business with, is a great, great bank. But you know, nobody's perfect. We're not, and we know them. We know them very well. But if there was one thing they could do uh, differently or better for you, what would that be? And the guy opened up, mm-hmm. and I got a call at eleven thirty at night on my voicemail. This girl screaming on the phone. Oh my God! It worked! It worked! We've got an appointment with them. We're going to be talking to them. You know.
0: <laughs> so it does work. And you know that's the example falls in the category of. Things that are easy to do are also easy not to do, right? Yeah. And uh, getting out and visiting with your customers and just asking them a few simple questions, you can learn a lot.